You're listening to Diplomatic Dispatch, brought to you by Idea Farm Malaysia. Get updates on our upcoming episodes and programs via our website at www.ideafar.gov.my or follow us on our social media at Idea Malaysia. Hello everyone and welcome. I am Farah Diba Ahmad and today's episode titled A Journey in Diplomacy and Leadership with the Chair of the Commonwealth Foundation, Datuk Sudadevi Vasudevan. So first, allow me to introduce our honoured guest, Datuk Sudadevi. Datuk is the first Malaysian and the first ASEAN to be elected as the Chair of the Commonwealth Foundation in 2020. In January 2023, Datuk was reappointed for another term for another two years and this reflects her exceptional leadership abilities and dedication to global cooperation. So obviously, Datuk has been flying Malaysia's flag in the global scene high and proud. Congratulations, Datuk. And a very brief introduction of the Commonwealth Foundation to our listeners. The Commonwealth Foundation, founded in 1966, is an intergovernmental organization established by heads of government in support of the belief that the Commonwealth is as much an association of people as it is of government. The headquarters in Marlborough House in London. It consists of 56 independent countries, including Malaysia. They are working towards shared goal, prosperity, democracy and peace. So back to Datuk Sudadevi, just to highlight Datuk's very impressive CV. Datuk has represented Malaysia in numerous esteemed positions around the world. She recently served as Malaysia's High Commissioner to Australia and before that, was Ambassador of Malaysia to the Federative Republic of Brazil. Her other diplomatic postings have included Germany, Singapore and Switzerland. Throughout her career, she has held various positions within the Malaysia Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including Director General of the Department of Policy Planning and Coordination, Under Secretary for the East Asia Division and Deputy Director General for the ASEAN-Malaysian National Secretariat. So today, Adi Afar is very fortunate and very blessed to have Datuk Sudadevi to get insight from her remarkable journey. Welcome, Datuk, to IDFR's podcast. Thank you, Farah. And I would like to also thank IDFR for having me today. You started off by introducing me. I would like to thank you for your very generous words about my career. I'm not sure whether I can live up to those uh, <laughs> words that you mentioned just now. But thank you very much. Yeah, our first question, Datuk Sudha, uh, you have made such a successful transition from being a Malaysian diplomat, the role of you know defending Malaysia, only Malaysia for a country, to a Commonwealth diplomat, which is assuming the role of most serious role of serving the interests of the Commonwealth countries in an international organization. Are there marked differences in these two roles and how would you describe that change in roles? Well, I think um, while both roles are different, um, as you mentioned, one was defending one single country, Malaysia, and the other is to serve the interests of Commonwealth countries or this, uh, through the foundation. But I think that they are the roles are very Uh, similar in some ways. Um, however, it was a steep learning curve for me and it required a change in mindset. And I had to consistently remind myself of this. Um, I had to change from thinking like a government agent to one looking at civil society as partners of government in policy making and also advancing their role, uh, strengthening their capacity for constructive engagement. While having said that, I think the key word here is interest. Yeah. Just like uh, the foreign policy of a country, uh, and in this case Malaysia, uh, would guide uh, its diplomats in defending its interests. The work of the Commonwealth Foundation is guided by its strategic plan, which as of now is from 2021 to 2026. And this strategic plan um, is very much discussed and later approved by the board itself. So all 48 or 50 members of the foundation have agreed to the strategic plan. So we are guided in my work as chair of the foundation. I'm guided by its vision, 
which means uh, we are looking at an equal, just and inclusive society uh, among the Commonwealth members and its mission, which is to contribute to that, uh, to that mission. And you have areas of focus. Now we are looking at health justice, climate justice and freedom of expression. So as you said earlier, the Commonwealth Foundation was established by the Commonwealth countries as an agent for civil society. And I think this is a very unique institution and the only one of its kind in the world where governments actually contribute to strengthen civil society. And it's also unique because apart from governors who are representative of the governments, there are five civil society governors representing the five regions. They sit on the board and also the executive uh, committee. Um, but I think overall, my experience in diplomacy was a valuable asset. Yeah. Um, not only managing the board, chairing the meetings, but also steering the work of the foundation um, in being able to bring together opposing views and matching the interests of both governments and civil society organizations. Our second question, as the chair, uh, how do you see the Commonwealth Foundation evolving and adapting to the changing needs of members' countries in the coming years? As you said, we have a lot of uncertainties of the world right now. So. The foundation, if you look at the, its background, since its establishment in 1966, it has evolved on several timelines. So from 1966, it was established as a charitable trust. Then in 1982, it evolved to become an international organization. Along the way, in 2004, the governance structure of the foundation was revived where civil society representatives were given a place at the board and also at executive committee meetings as civil society advisory governors. You see, the Commonwealth member country, when establishing this organization, publicly announced that they are supporting civil society. And they accepted that the people of the Commonwealth require, are entitled to a voice. So if you're talking about the business of governance, where many people think that it's only that of the government and not of the people, but through civil societies and through the foundation, the people of the Commonwealth can add their voice to this governance. So if you're looking at the crucial role that it is playing, it is actually an interface between government and civil society, serving more than 2.4 billion people of the Commonwealth. So I believe, and I I am sure that it has the ability to stay nimble, continue to adapt and embrace its role as a key member of the Commonwealth family. As you would know, the Commonwealth family has grown to have four countries without any historical connection to the British Empire. That is uh, most recently Togo and Gabon, Mozambique and Rwanda. So the work environment and the external environment will continue to change. How it's going to change and the demands that, that it's going to bring, one is uncertain. But I believe that the foundation will continue to remain proactive, adapting to the needs of the member countries internally and the demands of the changing external environment. And I hope it will become a valuable and essential partner to member states and a platform for the voice of the citizens of the Commonwealth. Our third question, before your appointment as the chair of Commonwealth Foundation, you will with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Malaysia, for 34 years. Yes. At least 34 wonderful years. <laughs> your last attachment as former High Commissioner of Malaysia to Australia, yes. So could you please share with us any experiences from your time in MoFAR? Any good leaders or good seniors that maybe you learned their leadership from? Or during diplomatic postings that have significantly shaped your leadership approach? Well, I would not go into specifics and mention names mm -hmm. because I think we all have our own role models. Um, my leadership approach, which I think is something that I adapt my style to suit the situation. 
And this has been a sum of my experiences. It is not one or two experiences that have shaped this. And this has been over the years where I have observed bosses and also those in leadership posts at the ministry at post and taken all those good qualities that a leader should have and tried to practice them. It's not always that you can. And I've also told myself while picking on the good points that once or twice when things have happened, um, I've said, oh, this is something that I will never do if mm -hmm. I am in a leadership position. You so, executive. Yes. Yeah. So as, as um, I went on in the career, I kind of picked up all this from observation. And of course, this would not be complete without the training courses that you attend from time to time. And I think it also was shaped to the external environment that one has to face dealing with locally recruited staff when you are at post because they form and they have different work cultures. So you would have to adapt to a certain extent. It's not um, one leadership style that fits everybody. For some, you cannot be authoritarian. For some, you have to be authoritarian. If not, no work gets done. Uh, for others, it is a very democratic process. So this has what has shaped my leadership style. It's not one or two instances. And along the way, I also think in teamwork because I think no man is an island. No, no leader without his team would be able to achieve. However, for us in the ministry, our team changes and we cannot choose our team because officers are assigned to you and every two to three years, they keep changing. Either you change your post to another post in the ministry or a posting overseas, or you have officers changing. So this has demanded or this has required, I think all of us, including me, um, you know, to change our style to suit the situation, um, so the, good or bad. <laughs> the, 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 the dynamic of the team, right? Yeah, sort of the dynamics of the team, that's right. Now, fourth question. Uh, as a, fact, a female diplomat, could you share with us uh, a time or maybe times in your career when you encountered challenges and how did you overcome it? We believe there must be many, but perhaps you can just highlight the most memorable or one or the most defining event that you want to share with the audience. I think, um, you know, as a female diplomat, challenges, as you mentioned, were always a constant, always some challenge or other. And to actually reduce it to one or two and to highlight one or two would actually be um, doing injustice. So I would actually say that, you know, uh, most of the challenges emanated from wanting to balance work and personal life. And in doing so, one affects the other and vice versa. So to give you some context, I think the younger generation might not be able to understand it. Um, the backdrop to how or when I joined the service in 1986, we started off, or we were the generation that had manual typewriters oh, and cyclostyle <laughs> machines. So we didn't have handphones and we didn't have computers or we didn't even have the internet. And during that time, um, I think we had to deal with, or I as a female diplomat, had to deal with society's traditional mindset of the role and responsibilities expected of a woman. And at the same time, demands of the job which can be all-consuming because the job doesn't say in the ministry, as I said, to a certain extent, they treated male and female officers the same. It didn't say that because you're a female, you cannot do a certain job. So you're expected to pull your weight. So what happens when you try to balance work and personal life is that you have to make compromises and you also have to make some decisions and tough ones. So for me, 
My husband and I agreed that the children would travel with me and he would be a visiting spouse. Not a trailing spouse, but a visiting spouse. So at the end of it, I became the tough disciplinarian as a parent. And he became the fun, fun parent because he was only home for the holidays or a short period and the kids enjoyed time with him. But having said that, I mean, you know, um, we found that key to having a long distance relationship was communication. And communication was different then. It was expensive phone calls, telegrams, which were not accessible to us on a personal basis. Yes. The other day. We were, we, we wrote a lot of letters and the other day I was cleaning up the closet and found a box of letters and I spent the whole afternoon reading them and reminiscing and I told my husband, I said, I think we should start reading letters. I mean, we should write writing letters yeah, yeah, again yeah. because they're so romantic, yeah. you know. Um, and the other challenge that I also faced is that you are an officer and the wife. And I always felt envious. I said male officers had 48 hours. 24 of theirs and 24 of their wives. But I only had 24 hours. And yet I had to do the job of an officer and of a wife. And of course, to add as a mother and everything else, you know. And when you're on a posting, you would find that you have parental challenges. You are in a different environment, culture, and you try your best to have the kids maintain their Asian identity and cultural roots in a foreign environment. So that can also be. So at the end of it, what do you become? You become good jugglers. Superwoman. <laughs> Not really a superwoman because I think there are many things that, you know, fall by the way. Um, but you also become uh, very good at multitasking, right? And, you know, as an anecdote, I would like to say that there has been often, even as late as my post in Canberra, that whenever somebody met my husband, um, separately uh, and didn't know that I was a high commissioner. They always thought it was the male that was the high commissioner and I was a spouse. So the world can be quite, uh, you know, cruel at times in not recognizing the role that you play. Could you please uh, share again? I think you have to touch a bit on your daily routine as the chair of the foundation and how you manage to balance work and personal life. Um, Do I read it? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> You see, unlike um, many people who don't know the, the role of the chair, um, I think that I keep a nine to five. I don't. That's the best part about the job. Because the position of the chair is a non-executive post. I am based in Malaysia and I only travel on work-related matters two to three times a year. So I get the best of both worlds. I work from home and all my other work for the rest of the year is done virtually. So I get my monthly briefings from the director general of the foundation, specific meetings that I would, or smaller meetings that I would have to chair, preparation for the board meetings, which is held in June yearly, is all done virtually. So as such, I don't have a specific daily routine. But given the time difference from London, you know, meetings are usually scheduled in the afternoon um, to cater for the office hours in London. And of course, there are certain weeks or certain months, it gets more busy than others. But I think the best part about being the chair is that I get to stay in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. I get to be with my family. Mm -hmm. I have my own time to do my own things. And yet I get to serve the Commonwealth. Nice to hear. Right. Dr. Suda, okay, uh, last, last question. But I guess the most important question. What advice would you offer to the future generation of women in diplomacy who aspire to follow a path similar to yours? Well, I don't know whether, you know, this would be advice, but um, I can say that the fact remains that despite 
many glass ceilings are being broken. Women will continue to face challenges uh, because diplomacy as such is still a very much male-dominated profession. But I think female officers or women who are wanting to take or follow this path should not let that deter them. You should just give your best and you should persevere. And if you do that, you will discover that it is a career that can be exciting and an extraordinary journey. And I believe that women tend to want to do everything best. Be a good daughter, be a good mother, be a good wife. But I think there are some things that you have to decide and you would have to differentiate on what you can solve and what you have to accept because you cannot solve all the problems or right all the wrongs. So when you do that, when you're able to discern the difference between what can be changed and what is best accepted, then it will give you perspective. Mm -hmm. And when you have that perspective, then you can choose your battles well. Mm -hmm. Because if you start fighting every battle without choosing the right ones, mm -hmm. then you'll only exhaust yourself and you'll end up being uh, bitter because you feel that you have given up much more and gained very little. So we are all different, each an individual in our own right. So stop comparing yourself or even second guessing yourself. Have the confidence in what you do and the decisions that you take. Thank you. Very inspiring words of wisdom from coming from Rapisida. Okay, I guess uh, there you have it. An incredible journey and wealth of wisdom shared by Datuk Sudadewi. So on behalf of IDFR and the audiences, I would like to extend our deepest gratitude to you, Datuk, for joining us today. Thank you, Datuk. Thank you very much. Tune in for more episodes of the IDFR podcast, Diplomatic Dispatch. Thank you for listening.